Well, good morning, Christ community. Good to be with you all. How many of you have ever had an internship? Any of you do internships? Okay, before I was a pastor, I did an internship at my church. And when my pastor approached me about doing this, I was really excited about it. I had wanted to be a pastor for a while, and I thought, this is finally my chance to see what goes on behind the scenes, to get a taste of real pastoral ministry and what it's like. And I imagined that what I would do would be this really profound, meaningful work. I thought, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give hope to people in despair. And I'm going to uh, challenge people and inspire people to do great things for God's kingdom. And, and I'm going to speak words that change people's lives, maybe even change the world. I mean, I'm a pastoral intern now, but the sky is the limit. You know what I did? I stapled a lot of stuff. Uh, I cleaned out the supply closets. I, uh, I got to use the laminator one time. That was pretty cool. Uh, but for the most part, it was menial stuff. And I started to think, what is the point of all of this? You know, one day after stuffing like 900 envelopes, I was like, what does this have to do with anything? Like, what have I got myself into? Why am I doing this? You ever have a moment like that? You're doing something, you're so excited to get into it. And when you finally get into the routine of it, you finally see uh, what it's going to take, you think, why? why? Why am I doing this? Maybe you've even encountered this with your spiritual life. You know, you, you started following Jesus. You're so excited to do that. You, you, you felt like from here on out, my life is going to be just this thrill ride with God. It's going to be amazing. It's so fresh and new. And you get into the routine of things. And before long, you realize, well, this is, this is different than what I expected. It's not quite the rush that I anticipated. And you wonder, is this worth it? You know, maybe things got hard and people are pushing back and you wonder, should I stick it out with this? Well, the original audience of the book of Hebrews was in a situation a lot like that. They had come to faith in Christ and at first it was exciting, but before long, things started to get harder and they were wondering if they should continue with him. The, the book of Hebrews was written to a group of Jewish followers of Jesus about 30 or 40 years after Jesus had died and rose again. And these Jewish Christians, they are looking back at their old life in Judaism, and they're, they're, they're looking at the things that they did, the rituals, the traditions they had, the temple, the priests, the, the sacrifices and all that stuff, and they were thinking, you know, that was really spiritually meaningful for us. It's stuff that our ancestors have done for thousands of years, and it's got this long history, and you know, when I sin and I feel guilty to have something like a sacrifice to reassure me that I'm forgiven is really, that's really helpful, and, and, and you know, it's, it's written in the Bible, right? So it must mean that God wants us to do this stuff. So they're kind of feeling spiritually restless because they're missing something that they, they thought they had in Judaism, and they're wondering if they have it in Jesus. At the same time, they're also getting uh, external pressure. Uh, the religion of Judaism was a tolerated, acceptable faith in the Roman Empire, but this sort of new, weird, spin-off faith of following Jesus was not. And so followers of Christ were getting all sorts of persecution. They were excluded, they were discriminated against, some had been arrested, some had even been killed. And so these, these believers are, are feeling this internal restlessness, and then they're feeling this external pressure, and they're asking themselves, should we keep doing this? Should we just go back to Judaism? And the author of Hebrews is trying to say, wait, 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 don't walk away from Jesus. Jesus is amazing. He's incredible. He is actually the fulfillment of all of those traditions, all of those rituals that you love so much. He actually it completes them and fulfills them. And so the author of Hebrews is trying to say, stick with Jesus. Let me tell you just how incredible he is. And so in the book, we've got these amazing pictures of just how perfect Christ is, which is why we're calling this series Picture Perfect as we lead up to Christmas. And we're studying these images of Christ in Hebrews because we want to keep him 
at the focus, not just of Christmas season, but our whole lives. We want to stick with him. So our image for today comes from the first two chapters of the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there with me. Uh, the passage, uh, the book of Hebrews is toward the end of the Bible, so you might want to start at the back. And the passage we're looking at is uh, a bit complex. So before we get too far into it, I want to tell you where we're going, kind of the punchline, so that you can keep track as we take this long and winding road. The, the key verse in here, that this sort of the takeaway of what we should do in response to this, is found in chapter 2, verse 1. So I'm going to put it up on the screen, and I'm going to actually have all of us at all four of our campuses read this verse out loud together. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Let's read it again. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Now, I'm even going to tell you ahead of time sort of what the practical application of this looks like. So concrete in your life, this is what this means, to pay attention carefully to what God has said. It means things like this, gathering for worship with God's people on the weekends like we're doing right now. It means studying the scriptures in your community group with your family on your own. It means praying, setting, setting aside time to pray with, with uh, the people around you and on your own. Uh, worship, Bible study, prayer. And if you have been around churches at all, you have probably picked up that these are things that we tell you you should do. And if you've been at Christ Community for any length of time, you have probably heard us say this. Uh, Jim has actually written books on two of those three things because we think that they're that important. Uh, and so some of you, I'm sure, have said, I'm going to try this. I'm going to throw myself into those things. And maybe along the way, you've started to do worship, Bible study, prayer, and you've gotten into the routine and you start to wonder, okay, why am I doing this again? Uh, you know, it, it sort of feels like just things I'm checking off the list or, uh, you know, I, prayer is good and when I got something heavy on my mind, it's great to bring that to God, but a lot of times I'm, I, I'm missing the motivation for why this is so important. So we're going to get around to that question of why does this matter? But in order to get there, we've got to take a journey and the journey begins in maybe an unexpected place. I'm going to have to explain angels to you to get there. So um, before we, we jump into the passage, let me give you some background on angels. In American Christianity, we don't talk a ton about angels. If you are in another culture outside the West, it might be a, a huge topic of conversation. Lots of other cultures obsess over spiritual things like uh, angels and demons and stuff like that. Uh, here in our culture, we tend to do the exact opposite. We tend to ignore them or, or deny that they exist. And so, very interestingly, when you go to the Bible, it kind of avoids both of those extremes. The Bible was written in an angel-obsessed culture, but it avoids all of that excess. But the Bible does mention angels and demons a lot. They're hardly ever the focus, though. There is no book of the Bible that is about angels. There's not even a chapter that just sort of lays out this is what angels are like. They show up in a lot of stories, but they kind of just come in when they're needed and leave when they're not. And even though we are told there are billions and billions of angels, we only are given the names of two of them. And because of this, what we know about angels, we kind of have to pick up in bits and pieces from around the Bible. And when we do that, we see that they kind of do four major things, okay? Let me tell those to you. First is this, angels deliver God's messages, that's the most common role of angels in the Bible. They're messengers. In fact, the word in Greek and in Hebrew for angel, both of them mean messenger. Uh, that, that's used, uh, the term is used for human messengers as well. 
So when you read the word angel in your Bible, you should think mailman. They're like the, the FedEx of the spirit world. And this is why angels are uh, not usually the main characters of a story, because the most important thing about an angel is the message they're bringing and who they're coming from, uh, not their sort of personal experience as an angel. The, the most famous examples of this are in the Christmas stories. You know, the, an angel comes to Mary to say, you're going to have a baby. And an angel comes to Joseph and says, make sure you go through with the wedding. And angels announce to the shepherds, the baby has been born. You should go and see him. So angels are messengers. The second thing that angels do is they fight God's enemies. Angels are soldiers. They're the standing army of heaven. Now, any of you have been reading through the Bible and come across the phrase, the heavenly hosts, Okay, it's kind of a weird phrase, you know, host. When you think of that, you probably think of uh, having someone over for dinner or you think about parasites or something like that. Um, but the word host in the Bible is kind of just an old-fashioned term for army. Uh, so when you see God called the Lord of hosts, uh, another way to say that is he is the Lord of angel armies. He is, if you will, the commander-in-chief. And this is part of what makes angels so terrifying. In popular depictions, angels are either, you know, chubby little babies or they're pretty girls with wings. But in the Bible, they are warriors of light and they're pretty fierce. In one story, an angel with just a word made an entire angry mob go blind. In another story, uh, one single angel took out an army of 85,000 people. Uh, another took out a whole city. Angels are overwhelming. They're intimidating. Uh, it's like encountering a, a forest fire or a tornado when you run into an angel. Uh, every time one shows up, the very first thing angels always say is, do not be afraid, because that's the most natural reaction to seeing one, which makes sense because they're the armies of heaven. Third thing that angels do is they praise God's glory. In, in nearly every vision we have of God, he is surrounded by a group of angels that are perpetually worshiping him. Uh, the book of Revelation describes the throne room of God, and there are, are 10,000 times 10,000 angels around him, which is another way of saying there's more than you can count, and they're continually singing songs of worship and praise to God. In, in Isaiah, we've got another vision of God's throne room, and there are these creatures called the seraphim. They've got six wings, and they, they co two cover their faces, and two cover their feet, and two help them fly. And they're always shouting to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, again and again. But why is God always surrounded by angels like this? Well, it's for the same reason why uh, uh, pop stars and actors, when they go out in public, they're always surrounded by an entourage. You know, they go into the club and they got the, the bodyguards and the cameramen and their friends. And they, you know, it communicates that this is an important people, a person, that someone, the, all these people gather around them. And in ancient times, a king was seen to be majestic and great if they had a big entourage around them. So God doesn't need angels to protect him or serve him. He can do those things for himself. But it does communicate just how glorious and great he is that all of these people are around him. Fourth thing that angels do, and this is maybe a surprising one, maybe a little weird, but it's important for our passage today, is that angels manage God's world. They are uh, spiritual administrators. In Deuteronomy 32, we are told that God assigned uh, different members of his heavenly court to different people groups in the world. So each culture, each nation has angels assigned to it. And we're not told exactly in detail what they do, but we get hints in different places in the Bible. 
in a couple of places, we get these visions of these heavenly councils where it seems like all of the angels from around the world have, have, have gathered to report into God. And it's almost like these are ambassadors or governors from different provinces, and they're sort of reporting to their king, to their emperor, about what's happening. If you were here in the summer, you may remember we talked about the book of Job, and at the very beginning of the book of Job, all of the angels gather to report in to God. This might be the, the equivalent of like uh, a joint session of Congress or the, the State of the Union address where all of the representatives from each state are gathered. There are a couple of other places where angels are given titles, titles like the Prince of Persia or the Prince of Greece. Now, again, we're not told the details of this, but it, it becomes clear that these angels are exercising some kind of behind-the-scenes influence on the politics and the culture of these countries. It seems that angels are a kind of spiritual bureaucracy running things behind the scenes. You might call them the middle management of the universe. Now, now here's the thing. Not all of these heavenly bureaucrats stayed loyal to God. Uh, about a third of the angels rebelled against God, and we call these rebellious angels demons. Uh, and demons who are influential in cultures and in systems in the world, in the New Testament, they are called the principalities and powers. Maybe you've run into that phrase and wondered what it meant. In, in Ephesians 6, we're told that followers of Christ fight back against the rulers and authorities, the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So as strange as it may be to think of this, it means that behind much of the evil in the world, from war to persecution of Christians to poverty, there, there are demonic forces urging it on, influencing it. So this is what angels do. They are messengers, they're warriors, they're God's entourage, and they are the spiritual administrators of the universe. So with that in mind, let's go to our passage in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 4. And in this passage, Jesus is being compared to angels, compared and contrasted. And whenever I run into a passage in the Bible that's comparing two things, what I like to do to kind of help me sort out all the details is to actually get a piece of paper and just write two columns. So in this case, I put Jesus on one side and angels on the other side. And I just started filling in the descriptions that the Bible used for each of those things. And at the end, I used that to help me understand the passage. So we're going to do that together as we read this. Verse 4. So Jesus became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So the very first thing we're told is that Jesus has a superior name to the angels. So on my paper, I wrote in the Jesus column, superior name, and in the angel column, inferior name. What does this mean, to have a superior name? I know that if you are a parent, you have thought about giving your child a good name. Those parents who are here dedicating their children have just been through this. You, you try to figure out a name that's going to be easy for the teachers to pronounce or uh, difficult to make fun of or, or means something significant in your life. Uh, I know one uh, family that just nailed this. They named their son, they gave their son the middle name Danger, which if you ask me is a superior name. But that is not quite the idea of what's going on here when the Bible says someone's name. In the Bible, someone's name is their reputation, their honor. And so what it means to have a superior name is that the people around you give you more respect and admiration. Sometimes it means that you have a higher rank. And so what this means is that Jesus has more honor and more authority than the angels. Let's keep reading. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father? Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. So after reading this, I wrote, Son of God in the Jesus column. 
And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So this is about angels, and so I wrote worshipers of God in the angel column. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. So again, in the angel column, I wrote servants. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. So Jesus is being depicted as a king here. He's got a throne and a scepter. He's being anointed with oil. So I wrote king in the Jesus column. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. So for this one, it's talking about Jesus as the creator of all things. So I wrote that in his column. And it implies that angels are creatures. It means that they haven't always existed. At one point, God made them. So I wrote creatures on that side. It also talks about how Jesus is unchanging while the angels are perishable like the rest of creation. If God doesn't uphold them, they disappear. They wither away. So I wrote that in their column. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your, your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Again, this describes Jesus as a king and angels as servants. So let's compare these two columns. Look at this. It becomes really clear when you look at this what the point of this whole section of scripture is about. Jesus is in every way superior to angels. And that by itself is really impressive, isn't it? You know, Jesus is more powerful than these almost invincible warriors. Jesus has more authority than these rulers in the spiritual world. That Jesus is not just one of God's entourage. He's actually uh, the one that the angels surround with praise and glory. In every way, Jesus is superior to angels. So that's cool, but why make such a big deal out of that in particular? Like, why didn't the author just say, you know, Jesus is God. That puts him at the top and just leave it at that. Why emphasize specifically that he was superior to angels? Well, part of it is because in his cultural background in the first century, Jews made a really big deal out of the fact that when Moses went up on the mountain to receive the law, to get God's promises and rules, that some of the way that he, was, he got those was through angels. They communicated with him. So it felt very significant to them that they should follow the law that was communicated by angels. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about how in the Old Testament, God spoke in a lot of different ways. But now, God has actually showed up in person, in Jesus, to communicate with us. Which means what we hear from him has even more weight than ever before. Look at chapter 2, verse 2. The author says, For since the message that was spoken through angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation was first announced by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. Think of it this way. If you got an email from your boss's assistant asking you to do something, you would probably take that pretty seriously, right? You'd think, I, I should do this or there's going to be some consequences. But what if your boss showed up, came to your workspace, and they pulled you aside and said, hey, this is something I really want you to know about. 
and I thought it was important that you heard from me in person. That would be even more weighty. You take that even more seriously. You, knew, you would know that that's important. So the author of Hebrews is trying to say what was written in the Old Testament was crucial. It was delivered by angels. But this was spoken by God's own son. If you thought the stakes were high before, they, are, they can't get any higher than they are now. But there's more going on here. There's more to this focus on angels than just that. Uh, something that I found out as I was studying the, the passage this week, uh, one of the things I do when I, I study passages and I run into an Old Testament quote in the New Testament is I go back and I look up that quote in the Old Testament. And the way I know where to find that quote in the Old Testament is in most Bibles, in the center column or on the, the bottom footnotes, it tells you where that can be found. And so it's a really good practice to go back and read that in its original context and then figure out what that means in the New Testament in light of that. So I, I can't do this right now in the, the sermon because there are seven passages in seven different places. Um, but what I can do is tell you some of the things that I found out as I did this this week. One of the surprising things I discovered was that almost all of these passages are about a human. Now you would think, if you're going to look about passages of who is greater than an angel, you would think they would be about God, right? Like it goes God, angels, humans, everything else. But in these cases, it was about a human king, the king of Israel. So I wonder why is that the case, that it's so important it be human? And I actually think the author of Hebrews has this in mind. Uh, look with me, if you will, at uh, chapter 2, verse 5. He says, it is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. The, the author is pointing forward to the time when God's going to renew the world, fix the world, heal it all. And he's saying at that time, angels are not going to be the ones in charge. Who is going to be in charge? Verse 6. But there is a place, and that place is Psalm 8, where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels, but you crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Now, this is a really significant passage, uh, but to help you understand it, I'm going to need to explain to you the org chart of the universe. Maybe you didn't realize the universe had an org chart. Uh, it does. Let me tell you about it. Um, if you imagine the world as sort of a giant company, a big corporation, uh, God has set up a management structure to make sure his company runs the way that he wants it to. Now, obviously, God is the owner of the company. Uh, the world is a privately held, family-owned business. The, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the only shareholders. They function as the board of directors. And now, as we've already seen, we know that God uses angels to do a lot of the behind-the-scenes work. So angels are kind of administrative assistants, or uh, if they have more responsibility, they, you might call them the middle management in the company. Now, the really important question for this passage is who is the senior management of the company? And here I'm thinking of what you might call C-level executives, you know, the CEO, the CFO, stuff like that. The people who have the greatest responsibility for making sure the company stays on track and follows the mission of the owners. So look again at verse 6. Quote Psalm 8, and it begins with this sense of wonder over the place of humanity in the world. What is mankind that you are mindful of them? And, and there's this tension because it observes that humans are clearly a little lower than angels in terms of power and, and strength. But it's, it's amazing that God has placed everything under humanity's feet. And if you didn't understand that, verse 8 makes it really clear. Nothing is not subject to humanity. Humans were meant to rule over all of it. 
This is actually the very first thing that was said about human beings in the Bible. When God makes people, he says, let us create human beings in our image. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, it means that we were given the assignment to rule over the world on God's behalf. Uh, God, as he, as he was saying this, let us make uh, them in our image. He says, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. We were made in God's image to rule God's world under his authority. God made us to be the kings and queens of creation. And he appointed the first human being, Adam, to be kind of the point leader for humanity. So in terms of our analogy, uh, humans are the senior management, and Adam was the CEO. Now this is really incredible, isn't it? I feel like this explains so much about human beings. It it is the reason why we're capable of so much good and so much creativity, because we were made in the image of God. It's also the reason why we have such a huge influence on the world around us. And it's the reason why our hearts aspire for for significance and purpose beyond just our our individual lives. We were made to rule the world, and nothing less will satisfy. But obviously something went wrong. Let's keep reading in verse 8. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. And yet, at present, we do not see everything subject to them. When you look around the world and you ask, does it look like humanity is in charge here? Does it look like everything is under our feet? The answer is no. The opposite, in fact. We're at the whim of natural disasters. We're devastated by incurable disease. There are billions of people who live without adequate resources for life. And every single one of us is subject to death. Even on a small scale. When you go home today, are you going to look around and say, yes, everything here is under my control? Or when you, when you go to work, you say, here, I am the master of my domain. I, I mean, I, I can't get my inbox or my laundry subject to my rule. Let's not talk about running the world, okay? We're not even capable of keeping ourselves under control. I mean, how many of you have desires that you wish you didn't act on? Or, or you have good intentions that you never seem to follow through on? I mean, subject the world to my will? How about just my sweet tooth, okay? So what happened? What went wrong here? Well, when God appointed Adam to be the CEO... Things didn't go as planned. Uh, A disgruntled group of middle management decided they didn't like the direction the company was headed, and so they attempted to undermine it. Uh, One of the rebellious angels, Satan, took aside the two top executives, Adam and Eve, and asked the question, do you really trust the owners here? And really, do you think that the owners actually trust you? Aren't they keeping some perks back from you? And just imagine what it would be like if you could run the company on your own, if you could implement your vision for the company instead of theirs. So that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. Rather than taking this rebellious middle manager and escorting him out of the building, they took what he said to heart. And they said, yeah, we really should be the ones in charge. See, that's what this whole fruit-eating thing was about. The real issue was who is going to set the vision for what happens in the world? Uh, Who is going to determine what counts as good and evil for the world? Is it going to be God? Or are humans going to try to to say what's good and evil for the world? So here's what happened. As a result, the owners of the company terminated the CEO and all of the senior management, all of those, those of us who followed Adam's lead. We were kicked out of our position in running the world. But of course, that didn't stop us from trying to do that. Uh, Each of these senior managers all broke off to form their own companies, uh, and they styled themselves as the owner, and they tried to implement their own vision for the world. 
each person, each community, every culture, we have all tried to shape our own little worlds around our desires and our will. We all live as if we were at the center of the world. And the result of this is conflict. All of these different companies compete with one another. And so you end up with personalities that clash and one group despising another group and nations going to war. And of course, the whole time behind the scenes, these rebellious middle managers, the demons are still whispering in humans' ears, telling them, you should try this, you should do that. And so we humans, we think that we're running the show, but the way the Apostle Paul puts it is he says, we're actually under the sway of the kingdom of darkness. And so the author of Hebrews says, at present, we don't see everything subject to human beings. But what does God do about it? Verse 9, what we do see is Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for a little while, but now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Here's what the owners did. They sent one of their own to take back control of the company. The, the Son of God became human in the person of Jesus. He became a little lower than the angels for a little while. And it's important for this plan that Jesus be fully human. This is really key. Because God didn't give up on his original plan for humanity being the senior management of his company. He really wants a human CEO. He wants us to rule his world on his behalf. So Jesus was sent to do what Adam failed to do. This is why in Jesus' ministry, he's always encountering demons. You may have wondered about this. You know, you read through the gospel, why so many stories about Jesus casting out demons and all of this? Well, that's because in order to reassert control of the company, the CEO has to clean house of all of the managers who aren't on board with the vision. And more importantly than that, Jesus also has to take responsibility for the mess that humans made of things. The, the, the failed managers of the, the company owe this huge debt to the owners. We, we had been entrusted with their property, and we used it for our purposes. We, we used company funds for personal gain. And now God is holding us to that debt. And as the new CEO, the new head of humanity, Jesus has inherited the problem, and he's got to find a way to pay the debt. And so that's what he does. Verse 9 says, he suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The, the debt that we owed was our lives, and so as our leader... Jesus gave his life on behalf of all of us. And look at what happened because of that. It says that we now see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. Jesus rose from the dead, and when he did, it was proof that our debt had been paid. And then he ascended into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. He sat down on the throne of the universe. This is why all of those verses in chapter 1 are about a human being exalted over the angels. Because the person on the throne of the universe is actually a human being. There is a human running the world once again. This is what the org chart looks like right now. Jesus is currently the CEO. But at the moment, we do not see everything subjected to humanity. But we do see Jesus crowned in glory and honor. So what does this mean for us? What it means is that one day we are going to be restored to our senior management positions. We are going to rule over the world with Jesus. If you look at the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we're given these sneak peeks into what's going to happen after Jesus comes back. And at one place, Jesus promises, he says, to those of you who stick with it, you know, if you stay with me to the end, I will give you the right to sit on my throne just as I sat on my father's throne. Now that is astounding. Like, can you imagine sitting on Jesus's throne just like he sat on the father's throne? 
That another place, it says that, that Jesus' people will reign on the earth. Now, this is this kind of a weird thought, isn't it? I mean, most of us, when we think about heaven, that's not what we're thinking about. We're thinking about sort of uh, uh, vacation, not work. But this is what the world to come is going to be. It's us ruling. Now, that's going to include ruling over the angels. Uh, there is this weird statement that every time I read it, it just makes me say, what is going on? It's in 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter, and he's telling this group of people who are fighting, he's saying, you really should be able to settle this yourself, you know? Um, and, and the reason I know you should be able to settle it is because don't you know that one day we will judge the angels? And every time I read that, I think, no, Paul, I did not know that. Uh, I, no one told me. Um, well, I guess he just did. Uh, but this is where things are going. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are going to rule the world with Jesus. So, so look around you. Look at the people around you. You are seated among royalty. You are the kings and the queens of the universe. It's astounding. You, you can understand why the psalmist would look at us and say, what is mankind, God, that you are mindful of us? that you care for us, that you've put all these things under our feet. Who are we, God? Let's circle back to the start. What does this have to do with our day-to-day -day life with Jesus? Well, here's how I want you to conceive of your life in light of this. You should think of your life as an internship with the king. God is at work in your life right now, and the reason he is working so hard to grow you and transform you and to make you into a new person is because he's preparing you for this huge responsibility to rule with him. And so if life is an internship, you are being mentored by King Jesus. But like a lot of work internships, it requires that we do some things that don't seem that exciting at first. How many of you remember the, the old movie Karate Kid, like the original Karate Kid, okay? Uh, great movie. It is, uh, if you haven't seen it, it is about this old uh, martial arts master, Mr. Miyagi, and he is training this uh, teenage boy, Daniel, to do karate. Now, one of the most famous sequences in the whole movie is when Mr. Miyagi has Daniel wax his car. Now, you remember what he says? Say it with me. Wax on, wax off. Very particular how he's supposed to do it. Uh, after this, he has him sand the floor, and then he has him paint the fence, and he's very particular about how it's supposed to happen. And at a certain point, Daniel gets fed up. He said, I thought I was, you know, going to learn karate, not do chores. And he confronts Mr. Miyagi and says, I thought you were going to teach me how to fight. And all I've done is wax your car and sand your floors and paint your fence. And Mr. Miyagi says, not everything is as it seems. Not everything is as it seems. And he then proceeds to show Daniel that all of those motions, the, the, the wax on, the wax off, the paint, and all of that, are the basic motions that he is going to need to actually learn karate. And by doing them over and over and over again, they've been worked into his muscle memory, and now they're going to come out much more naturally. So he is learning karate without even realizing it. This is how our lives work. We have been saved. We have been called to this huge task of reigning and ruling with Jesus. And yet our day-to-day -day, day -day lives, what does it look like? We potty train our toddler. We write purchase orders. We shovel the driveway. We do our math homework. But I thought we were supposed to be kings and queens. What is this? Not everything is as it seems. We are learning to rule without even knowing it. And as we go through life, we are being formed by the things we do to prepare us for that ultimate destiny. Uh, when I look back on my internships and all those menial tasks I did, I think about them differently now. 
They, they were important for me in ways I didn't realize. You know, I learned servanthood and humility by doing it, which is really important for being a pastor. It was exposing me to the inner workings of a church that I never had a chance to see up close before. They gave me the chance to grow in responsibility with small things before I was handed things that I, were bigger than I could handle at the time. Jesus says it this way. He says, the one who is trustworthy with little will be entrusted with much. So why does God give you the work of, of raising your children and taking care of your home? To, to prepare you and hopefully your children for greater influence over the world. Why do we change oil and file documents and write research papers? Because God is forming us to do work on even greater things. Why do we take meals for people in need or mow our neighbor's yard when they're on vacation? Because in caring for other people, we are practicing caring for the entire world. One of the best things about my internships I always found was my weekly meetings with my mentor. We would grab coffee or dinner. He would take me on a, a, an errand with him and I, I would hang out with him and we would just talk. And, and I, he would share insights with me, and I'd get to ask him questions, and we'd talk about ways that I could grow and develop, and I got to observe how he handled different situations, and it was really, really formative for me. This is what the ordinary spiritual disciplines we do as followers of Jesus are like. When we worship Jesus, we, what we're doing is we're observing and focusing in on our king, and we're saying, what are you like? How do you run the world? Let me, let me see this so that I can imitate it. When we study scripture, we're learning wisdom from King Jesus that will one day enable us to, to rule with him. When we pray, we're, we're asking him questions and we're talking to him about situations so that we can grow and develop. The, the, these are the things that keep us attentive to our mentor, Jesus. That's why Hebrews 2.1 says, we must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. As Christ followers, all of these things that we do, we don't do just because they're good for our emotional health. We don't do them because there's some list that says, check, 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 you've got to do all of these things. No, the reason we do this stuff is because we know the stakes are so high. Every single one of us, every single human being is going to end up in one of two destinies. We are either going to be ruling with Jesus in the future world, or we're going to drift away from him and spend eternity apart from God. And so we are eager, eager, eager to pay the most careful attention we can to what we have heard, to stay locked in on this good news that Jesus has saved us, that he is currently ruling over heaven and earth. We do this to stay in touch with Jesus, the king of angels, so that one day we will reign with him. Let's pray. Jesus, we honor you. We give you our worship and our loyalty because you are our king, the king over the whole world and the king over our lives. You are greater than everything. You're greater than us. You're greater than angels. Nothing is above you, Jesus. And so we give you our praise and our worship. God, God we want to do that right now with the song that we're going to sing. We want to we focus in on you and see your splendor and your majesty, and we want you to be honored by it. We we're also going to do this with our gifts, our, our offerings. We know that that is a part of being responsible with small things so that we can be entrusted with much. And so we pray that you would make us responsible with the, the financial resources that we have. And God, we pray that as we go through this week, uh, that you would be forming us and shaping us and that you would be giving us joy in the mundane things, in the ordinary things, that one day we will join you in your glory in your new world with you as our king. And we pray this in your name. Amen.